Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 1 through 6. Please follow me as we read the word of God. Now I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am weak, meek, when face to face with you, but bold toward you when absent. I ask that when I am present, I need not be bold with the confidence with which I propose to be courageous against some who regard us as if we are walking according to the flesh. Though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of flesh, but divinely powerful. For the destruction of fortresses, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. Father, we come today to celebrate the empty tomb. Father, we come to celebrate and understand what a horrible price for our redemption. But Father, I pray that as we look at the topic of spiritual warfare, that we understand the cross and the tomb are proof of the war that is before us. We love you and we thank you for what you've done. Father, may we stand in the grace that is in Christ. Amen. I gave you an overview over the next three chapters of what we're going to be looking at. Uh, and it's basically warfare. Uh, I think there's a, a, a large uh, misnomer in Christianity today that says, once I become a Christian, then everybody thinks I'm their bud and everybody wants to be friends. And we're going to go skip that he do down the Yellow Brook Road singing Kumbaya. Well, I got news for you. If you stand in his righteousness, you will be persecuted. You've got to understand. I remember reading a book called Lectures to My Students by Charles Spurgeon. And he says, why is it so many believe that they are to be hoisted on the shoulders and carried off in, as victorious leaders when they carried our king off on a cross? And yet that's what we do. And we don't understand it. We think, well, we're in the United States and we have this and we all love each other and we all get along. Let me tell you something. You stand firm in the faith. They will not love you. They, in most parts, will not even like you. I was supposed to go to Azerbaijan next fall. Okay. I read, give them my passport number and uh, I got a little note back the other day. It's actually been a couple of weeks ago. Can't. Why? Two reasons. One, I've been in Russia as a pastor. Two, I have an Israeli stamp. It's a Muslim country. So I've got two big boo-boos. Okay? Because the first few times I went to Russia, I went to Russia as a teacher. That's how it was listed. My last two trips were pastoral. Because they made it a law that if you got behind a pulpit... You were preaching that was pastoral. That's a different visa. Okay, if I went and just sat in a classroom every day, but we, if you go over there, they want you in every pulpit they can get you in as often as they can move you. So it's out there. The war's hard at it. 
I, I wish I could get people to understand that the walk with Christ is, is not comfort. It, 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 it is not easy. It, if it's easy, it don't take a cross. And people will shun you. People will mock you. And in some cases, they will persecute you. People who used to be your friend will turn on you. When I look at this now, and as we're moving into this text, I've got four things here that I think that a good soldier needs to have if they're going to, it's sort of like the soldier's uniform. You know, I've, I've read the Ephesians where you get the helmet and the breastplate and the shield and, and all the rest. And that's great. And if you want to use those, then use them. Um, but I want you to think about the Apostle Paul and the fact that he's planning this third return trip to Corinth. Okay. But I want to tell you some things about soldiers that I have learned. I, in my years, have been blessed to meet many soldiers. And I'm talking combat veterans. Okay. Uh, some of you guys would remember Henry Piointek. He fought at Corregidor, uh, was a survivor of the Bataan Death March. Okay. And to the day he died, he would not buy anything made by Japanese. And he says, is that a sin? And I told him, don't worry about it. <laughs> if not buying Jap made is your biggest offense, piece of cake. <laughs> okay. Because he endured things that you and I can't understand. They used to feed unshelled rice to the prisoners. Okay. It's got a hard shell on it. And the reason that they would feed it that way is that it would go into the digestive tract after they started starving and it would cut the insides of their stomach and intestine and they would bleed to death internally. That way they didn't have to feed them no more. But they weren't guilty of not feeding them or killing them. You know, if the guy wanted to shell each kernel of rice so he could get to the seed... But you're going to use more calories than you're going to get. Okay. He told me some stuff like that. I have a very precious friend uh, lives next to Paige's dad in Roanoke. Uh, his last name Slaughter. His Sergeant Slaughter. He wrote a book. And I was like, you can't make this stuff up. Okay. He was at Omaha. First wave. He's seen things you cannot understand. I have a dear friend, even this day, uh, lives up in Parker, was a, a survivor of Chosin Reservoir. He was at Chosin and was trying to make the pull back to get to the oceans to get on ships and were waiting for reinforcements uh, as millions of Chinese soldiers in about minus 25 to zero was the temperature swings we're trying to kill them all the way back through. I've got a whole bunch of buddies who were in combat in Way City, Vietnam, in Da Nang, La Train, uh, Quezon. That, and I, I'm talking nasty places. Soldiers. And you know one of the things that I've noticed about true Combat soldiers. 
It's across the board. Across the board, every single one of them. There's a bunch of guys out there who, I was in combat. Well, what did you do? Well, I was in combat. You know, it's, I remember when you work on motorcycles, people tend to be braggadocious. And there for a long time, I thought that every soldier in Vietnam was a sniper. I'm like, how did we lose that? I mean, one shot, one kill. <laughs> you guys ain't got that many people. <laughs> okay, but anyway, you, you realize that a lot of guys talking... Is exactly what they're doing. The guys who've been there and looked it in the eye, they've got one thing that I've noticed that is absolutely across the board alike on every one of them. Even the guys that I know that have been in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I mean, I'm talking the ground pounding guys who was out in the boonies. They're some of the most compassionate people I ever met in my life. The best soldiers only use deadly force when they are absolutely required and there are no other options. The best are tender, they're sympathetic, and they have a heart for humanity. They find no joy, they find no satisfaction in destroying life of any kind. They may have done it. They may have done it on large scales. But it was because they had no other options. They don't like bloodshed. Regardless of what your Hollywood movies would teach you. We all go to the action movie. Because we know in the beginning. The good guy is going to get hurt. But he's going to rise up. And whip butt. And take names. Okay, and then, well, yeah, that's what it's, that is not the way it truly is. True soldiers, the best soldiers, do not like bloodshed, they do not like carnage, and it is not their goal. And they are not even entertained by it. Regardless of what the Hollywood actors would like for you to think. They use violence and destruction as a last resort. Great soldiers may have great massive power. Massive ability. They may even have great boldness. But it is always guarded by his compassion. It is always constrained by his compassion. Now, he'll exercise that great power when there is no other option. That is what the spirit that is being pushed forward by the Apostle Paul in this text. He moves out of what we've been looking at, 8 and 9, on giving. This is what our ministry is. This is what we're going to try to do to a very powerful very direct, very forceful language. If you focus your view there on verses 3 through 6, he says, Though we walk in the flesh, we do not a war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powered for the destruction of fortresses and the destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. And we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And we are ready to punish all disobedience. 
gosh, sounds like he's cranky. So, that gives you kind of the context of what is the attitude of a person in spiritual warfare. And here the Apostle Paul is speaking of his compassion. Paul's a great warrior. He may be God's greatest ever soldier. But you've got to say, he did have an awful lot of compassion, even though he had great authority and power behind him. He's the only one to ever use a spiritual gift in an offensive manner. Did you know that? He blinded the magician. You know, I want to buy the Holy Spirit. Paul says, you are so, you'll never see again. And he couldn't see again. And you're like, whoa, I want that gift. (laughs) Go ahead, cross my bridge. (laughs) The words you see there now in verse 1. Clean break in the thought. I'm changing subjects. I'm going to talk about something else. Okay. Using that now, he enters into the final section. And he's changed the subject. And he continues it through to the end of the book. Then he says this. I, Paul, myself. I, Paul, myself. Okay. He's he's going back to that. He wants them to know because what had happened in the Corinthian church? His authority had been questioned. Is he really an apostle to the Gentiles? Is he really have a message from Jesus Christ? Or is he making this up? Okay. They were trying to discredit him. He's got a, a message of grace because he's trying to get favors. That's what he's doing. But, and you see, this was what had happened. Now that relationship has been restored. Is he a messenger of God? Does he have the right to speak for God? Does he have a message from God? Is he truly an apostle? Was he really called by Christ on the Damascus road? See, all you do is sow seeds of doubt. Paul urges now that that relationship has been reaffirmed and he puts himself right back in the place of authority. We have to understand that. I stand and speak. As an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am the spiritual father of the church in Corinth. That's why he uses that. I Paul myself. I Paul myself. I am a spokesman of God. I am his bond servant. I am here holy and solely for Christ and him crucified. That gospel message. The relationship is restored. His words now are authoritative. So if his words now are authoritative, know this. His threats would be authoritative. So would his presence. Remember, we're going to look at it next chapter. I'm coming back for the third time. Remember earlier, he said, I wanted to come back the third time, but I didn't want to come back in sorrow. 
Now that they've been restored, he says, I'm coming back. But he also knows that there, though the general congregation of the Corinthian church has changed, has repented. You're still going to have some of those uh, with the spiritual gift of murmur. They stand over in the corner and I don't know if he's really legitimate. I don't care. You know, I think he just got mad at us. He has divine authority and it had been seen and now it has been reestablished. And you know what he says? I will confront those who rebel. And he is explaining to them, I have the right to do it. I have the authority. But then, but before he comes to that, it's fascinating. Parakaleo. I, Paul, myself, parakaleo, you. New American Standard translates it, urge, beg. What's he wanting? In this, in the rebellion. I want real peace. I have no desire to see conflict. Do you understand that? Those soldiers that I told you that I know, there ain't a one of them wanted conflict. I remember Henry Piontek said all he knew is that he had one year's duty on the Philippines and then he was going home and getting married. They had already made arrangements. He had to do his one year. And it would be great. She was going to wait for him in San Francisco. And the Japanese said, long engagement. And he was in a prison camp for four years. And his wife, fiance waited for him without ever hearing one word. There was no letter. There was no phone calls. uh, There was nothing. No affirmation that he was still alive. And the American army had no idea who was dead, who was taken prisoner, who was wounded, who was... They didn't know. They had no idea. Had absolutely no idea what happened to the men who defended Corregidor. And she waited. When he got off the prison boat, (laughs) she was there. And I don't know who's crazier among them two. All right. But he didn't go there planning that. My friend was stationed just outside of Way City when the Tet Offensive started. And they were an R&R. They had been in the jungle for almost a year. Sloshing around. He said, I didn't think I would ever be dry. And they had this little base and they went to it and it was classified as their country club. And they're like, yeah. And they had been there for 24 hours and he was trying to get some clothes sort of semi-cleaned. And they said, hey, they've got a little problem with the Arvin army up in uh, Way City. We'll be back before dark. And he said, it's no problem. We'll truck you in. We'll make sure that, you know, we get everything squared away. We'll truck you back that night. A month later, they were done. 50% casualties. Okay. 
Casually, I mean, 50% were killed. He says, there was no one who was not wounded. Okay. They didn't go looking for a fight. I remember it. Some of you don't remember. I remember that wonderful thing you got at your 18th birthday. It let me drink beer. But then you had to watch the lotto game in September. And hope you didn't win. You got that, the number. What is that? Well, they roll these balls, and if your number comes up, they choose where they want to send you. And at that time, the big vacation spot was jungle. Okay? They don't choose that. Paul didn't want to go back to Corinth, and let's have a bloodbath. I have no desire for conflict. I have no desire to see blood spilled. I don't want to see open church schisms. I have no desire for carnage. So he's patiently and compassionately, he has waited. He sent the severe letter. He got the response back from Titus. He's writing this letter. It'll be about three more months before he gets there. But this letter, this 10 and following, he's taking it back saying, clean up the mess. Clean up the mess. He'll wait a little more. A little more time to change directions. A little more time to talk sense into some of those gifted with murmuring. He says, I beg you, I urge you. And then he says this. I beg you and I urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. Okay, that is a great soldier. Why? He's not vindictive. I'm not here to get revenge. I'm not here to get even. I'm not coming back in anger. I'm not coming back in rage. I'm not even going to come back, shake my finger at you and say, told you. That's a great soldier. A great soldier who's looking for victory in a spiritual war. He first and first of all is full of compassion. That compassion is manifested in meekness and gentleness. The word meekness means humble, gentle attitude which expresses itself in a patience endurance of an offender. Did you get that? Well, how many times am I supposed to forgive? Well, I always, is it seven times 70? Is it, ain't that how it is? I asked this simple question. How many times Jesus forgive you? Because you say you are a follower of Rambo. (laughs) I'll get you. No. It is a humble, gentle attitude which expresses itself in patience, endurance of an offender. And you know what's cool about that? It's free of anger. There ain't no anger there. The bitterness is gone. The desire for revenge when wrongly treated. Why? It's a humble, a gentle person. Even when you've been treated unfairly. Have you ever been treated unfairly? And, and you always hold it back here, don't you? You always smile and say, ah, oh, it's all right. 
Uh, golly, you just wait, buddy. Right? It just hangs out back here. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul says, no. If there's disobedience when I get there, I will deal with those who are disobedient. But for the rest of it, it is as if nothing ever happened. When Jesus forgave you for your sin, it is separated as far as the east is from the west. There is no record of it. They were nailed to the cross. Okay, gentleness... It, it, this word is used of a person, uh, it's applied to someone who's in authority. Okay, what I mean, you know, you can be very passive and, and humble and meek because you don't have any other way. You, you can't take them two out of three. Uh, you have no way to ever get even, so you, I'll be meek. Okay? The gentleness side of it says, not only do I have a way... I am dominant. It's like Christ on the cross. If he wanted a legion of angels, he could have had it. They were at his beck and call. Now, what is a legion of angels? A legion of angels would be about a thousand. Okay, one angel. One angel in about 30 minutes destroyed 185,000 Assyrians. So a legion... That'd make a mess. But it'd be quick. But he didn't do it. So it's someone who is in authority and they have a patient submission even when mistreated. Even when they are in the middle of misjustice. And they will deal without anger. They will deal without malice. They will deal without revenge. And even though they have the power to retaliate, they don't. They don't. You know what? When I read those two words, by the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, doesn't that characterize Christ? Meek and gentle. I mean, the next time he shows up in the clouds... People are trying to figure out what meek and gentle is. But if you think about it, the next time he shows up in the crowd, how long with someone in his authority has waited patiently enduring? Let's be realistic. There is no one more powerful than Christ. Okay. I, I, a lot of people like to give Satan a lot of power. He ain't got nothing. Okay? And yet, even with the power that spoke existence into being, no one has better harness of that power than Christ. No one ever had that power under control better than Christ. Let's be realistic. If someone covered your head and then sucker punched you, all right, and you've got the power to call down a legion of angels, really? They whip you with a scourge, and you've got the power to bring forth and open the planet Earth and swallow everything around it? 
They spit on you. They mock you. They put a crown of thorns on you and nail you to a wooden cross. I don't care how you slice that. That there is power under control. No one had greater power. No one had greater judgment ability. No one had it under control greater than Christ. He took the almighty power of God to bring about retaliation on sin and kept it in check and exercised patience and endurance. I, Paul, myself, urge you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. I want to be like my Lord, Paul says. As patient and as gentle, as meek, and hold the power in check as the Lord Jesus Christ would do it. Even though he was shamed by the Corinthians. He wanted the patient character of a great soldier. I want to, dis- being that it's resurrection day, I want to look at this in a little more detail, this meekness and gentleness of Christ. Okay? I want to look at it from someone who understood the cross probably, probably better than anybody other than Christ. Peter. Okay? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 19 and following. Speaking of the honor of authority, and then he says this, verse 19. For this finds favor, if for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. That is an illustration of gentleness and meekness. A person who will endure, bear up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Listen, there's times we bring self-inflicted suffering. Right? What was you thinking? One of those? Right? Right? I mean, sometimes we do things and it's obvious we didn't think it through. All right. There's times we bring it on on ourselves. But there's times when you can't suffer unjustly. When we suffer unjustly and we endure it. And what I mean by that, there's no retaliation. There's not a thing to be angry about. There's not a bitterness there. There's not a vindictiveness there. You know what is amazing about that? Look at verse 20. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated and you endure it with all patience? Okay, if you had it coming to you and you endure it, so what? Right? But if when you do what is right and you suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor. With God. It pleases God. It finds favor with God. You ever think about that? It makes God happy when you suffer unjustly and endure it patiently. God is pleased. 
You know what? I hate to break the news to you. That is the ultimate definition of spiritual maturity. Now, and I know that everybody wants to be spiritually mature, but that's it. Okay, now remember, I want to tell you, when you're doing what is right and you are unjustly suffering for doing what is right. And you endure it patiently with meekness and gentleness, not anger, not bitterness or vengeance that pleases God. The only person who can do that is a spiritually mature person. Paul bore on his body the wounds of meekness and gentleness. I mean, I think about Stephen being stoned. And he looks to heaven and says what? Forgive them. Do not hold this sin to their charge. As they're throwing stones at him. I'd have picked one up and threw it back. Just one. I forgive all of them but him. <laughs> when that happens to you and all you've done was just right and you suffer quietly and patiently and you endure, God is pleased. God is pleased. Verse 21 is the same text. If you, you, you really want to read this, do you believe the Bible? Do you really want to read this next verse? Now, you remember, I want, I love you guys. I didn't write this. Okay. I, I didn't even edit it. I'm just reading it. Okay. If you do what is right and you suffer for it patiently, endure it. This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose. You know, there ain't nobody ever told me that when I walked an aisle. I'd have thought about it. I have been called to suffer unjustly and to endure it patiently and quietly. Did I sign that contract? My translation would be this way. Might as well learn to deal with it. That's just part of being a Christian. You know what? I was growing up in an age. Some of you will not know what I'm talking about. Some of you will. And it was the age, the birth of the counterculture. Okay. And uh, I won't get into the details of it, but it was basically going to go counter of what the culture is. Okay. And just. Leave it at that. All right. And I thought that was a great idea. Okay. Because it, I don't know, just that little rebellious streak that I so well possess. I thought, well, that's kind of cool. Let's be counter of the culture. You know what? Christian is the true counterculture. I'm an alien in this world. Everything in this system is hostile to me. Did you know that? Even in this country, everything in this system 
is hostile to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Please understand that. How hostile? It declared war on us 2,000 years ago. And it ain't stopped because we haven't been defeated. You will be called into unjust suffering. You will be harassed. You will be slandered. You will be mocked. Maybe even persecuted for only doing what is right. And you know what? The society will do it. And it shows in various forms. But I want you to remember this verse I just gave you. For you have been called for this purpose. That's why God saved you. To make you counterculture. A follower of Christ. But if you read on. Since Christ also suffered for you. Leaving you an example. Aren't you glad we stepped into this verse, huh? For you to follow in his steps. Happy Easter, people. Count it all joy when you fall into various... Trials, because if you suffer for a little while, the Lord will make you perfect. Did you know that in this world you will have tribulation? It goes with the territory. So we learn how to suffer. We learn how to endure the suffering. We have a right attitude toward those who persecute us, to those who would slander us, those who would mock us, those who would harass us. And when we do that, we can know right then and there, with that right attitude, God is pleased. Verse 22 says, Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Listen, I hate to break the news to you. We have a lot of deceit in our mouths. Okay, he doesn't have any. He doesn't have any. He has showed us how to endure unjust suffering. There is no one who suffered more unjustly than the person of Jesus Christ. Christ suffered unjustly in his perfection and he did it so that you and I in 2014 would have an example. Why? Because he rose to walk in the newness. We are looking to walk in the newness. We are followers of Jesus Christ. We have been called to this. Verse 23, while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. You know what is amazing about that? When he was hanging on the cross after being beaten up all night, mocked, spit on, fake trials in front of Annas, Caiaphas, Herod, and Pilate. All the people who had cheered him as king of the Jews on Sunday had that night crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. 
And there he is hanging on that cross with those spikes through his wrists and his feet, bleeding to death in agony and anxiety. His disciples have scattered like sheep. He looks to the people who are, well, he couldn't save himself. He looks to those people and says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now you have an idea what meekness and gentleness of Christ is. There is no anger. There is no malice. There is no revenge. Paul says, I come to you with the same meekness and gentleness of Christ, long-suffering and patient. I come enduring. He knew the character of the Lord. And he wanted to be just like him. That's the standard of a good soldier, people. If you do not have victory in spiritual war, and I'll define it more as we go. If you do not have victory in spiritual war, I guarantee you that's lacking. Your compassion, your meekness, and your gentleness. So as we close, ask yourself a question. You have the resurrection You have salvation. You have an empty tomb. He is alive and we are forgiven. Would you walk like him? Would you follow him? Because he gave you an example. And we all have been called to that purpose. That's compassion. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the empty tomb. Father, thank you for the gentleness and the meekness of our Savior and our Lord Jesus Christ. I still am in awe of that. Father, I pray as we celebrate with our family and our loved ones uh, the rest of this day, we think about being followers of Christ. Up from the tomb, he arose to seal each and every one of us that we can be called children of the Most High God. But Father, may we be overwhelmed with the same compassion. As Paul urged the Corinthians with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, Father, I urge Castle Rock Baptist Church with the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, let us be followers and walk as he walked. Thank you, Father, to your glory and praise. Amen.